Welcome to the Music, Money, and Life podcast. This podcast is brought to you by HowToLicenseYourMusic.com. If you want to learn how to make money writing music for TV, films, and ads, visit HowToLicenseYourMusic.com today for a free video series all about how to write music specifically for use in TV shows, films, and commercials. Music, Money, and Life is the podcast that brings together the best minds in music licensing, music publishing, music marketing, and more together in one place. Learn how to license your music and market your music. Learn the latest cutting-edge techniques for getting your music heard and making money from your music. Learn directly from the musicians and industry insiders on the front lines of the music business. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review in iTunes. Every positive review helps us rise up the ranks in iTunes, gain more subscribers, and attract more and more great guests. And now, without further ado, here's today's podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Music, Money, and Life podcast. Today, I'm excited to be speaking to Chuck Hughes from the Hillbilly Hellcats. Chuck was on the podcast, actually. Chuck and I were just talking about this. It's been five years, or almost five years now. It's hard to believe that it's it's been five years, Chuck, and I know you've done a lot of things since we last uh, spoke, so I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, catching up with you. Yes, I can't believe that much time has gone by, but uh, but uh, sometimes I feel like I'm not getting anything done, but when I look back and make a little list, I see I did get involved in some stuff. So that's kind of reassuring. Yeah, no, it looks like you've done a lot over the last five years, and I agree. It's it, it's hard to believe that it's been five years. I launched my podcast in 2013, and I think you were one of the first few guests that I had on. So it's it's um it's great to have you back on. And I actually wrote a, a blog post um a week or so ago called Be Like Chuck. And and I used you, Chuck, as you know, as sort of a, a really good example of, of one of my clients from howtolicenseyourmusic.com that has done really well over the last few years in music licensing. So I want to sort of bring people up to speed on what you had accomplished in 2013, because I think at that point, if I recall correctly, I was thinking about our conversation the other day, I believe you said you were already up to like $10,000 per, per quarter. Do, am I recalling that correctly from, from licensing? Um, let's see. I, I don't recall exactly what I said. Uh, I did review it, and I think that what, you, uh, what we established was that from a combination of licensing and playing, live performance, uh, I was... I was approaching fifty thousand dollars per year, right? And uh, and that is that was is still true. Now I wanna wanna say that as a musician, uh, a self-employed person, you learn to become tax savvy, and as a result, you take all the dedu- deductions to which you're legally entitled. So uh, you know you want to whittle that fifty thousand dollars down to a uh, a far lesser amount for the sake of having to pay taxes on it. Sure. And uh, musicians certainly do have a lot of expenses. And, uh, and so, so, you know, that 50,000 rec, you know, represents the gross. Uh, some people have asked me about that. That represents my gross for the year. And then, you know, I spent that on transportation, uh, uh, musical instruments, subscriptions to websites, uh, advertising, repairs, you know, all the things. But, but you know, I think the important thing is that um, 
I'm not like a like a guy in a real estate investor commercial where you can see me in front of my planes and limousines uh, down in uh, Mexico. But I don't have another job, you know. I make a decent living, comfortable living, and all my income is um, music related from from the various sources. So I kind of feel like that's the um, the first hurdle when you can say that everything you do is music related and you have your uh, health and your uh, housing, you know, medical and a uh, little bit of fun taken care of, then, you know, everything after that is gravy, so to speak. I don't leave, lead a life of, of luxury, uh, but, uh, but I'm happy to be, you know, a full-time musician uh, for whatever this uh, business happens to be now. I like to say that the current music business looks nothing like the one that I entered 30 years ago. And, yeah. uh, and that's just the way it is. And that's kind of true for all businesses, but, hmm. um, but I've done my best to keep up with it. But, but, but yeah, so we can say, you know, uh, 12,500 a quarter, um, I'm grossing and then I whittle it down from there. Enough to not have another day gig. Absolutely. Well, well, look, I think the dream for most musicians is to simply live off the money they make from music. I mean, I think for the vast, I mean, obviously to go further, and I'm sure a lot of musicians have aspirations to become famous or, or to quote unquote make it. But I think for a lot of us, just being able to make a living doing what we love it is is enough to, to be happy. So I, I want to sort of focus though on what you've been doing over the last five years because sure. you've, you've done a lot. And one of the first things that I want to jump into is Spotify. I was blown away to see that you've had over 2 million streams on Spotify. You have 14,000 followers. Um, talk to us a little bit about your, your Spotify strategy, Chuck. How have you been able to uh, accumulate so many listens? Well, I would say that the groundwork was laid in uh, pre-internet days. Uh, when I did my first album, I knew that I fa faced a choice that many bands face, and that is that you can play the three or four local clubs and where you have little expenses and maximum profit, and you can keep doing that. Now, the vast majority of players will do that. However, if you want to build your base, you need to widen your sphere of influence. And in the 90s, when I started, widening your sphere of influence meant getting in a van and booking shows in other states and cities. And uh, however, what that means is that you're going to be lucky to break even on uh, touring like that small time touring in the beginning. But I decided that I would be willing to break even and, uh, and go out and, and expand my uh, sphere of influence. I'm based in Denver and if you think of Denver as being the center of a three-leaf clover and the perimeter of those three leaves representing the route that you take, uh, I had three routes that I would book in for van touring. One went from San Diego up the coast to Seattle and then back through Boise back to Denver. That was somewhere around 5,000 miles. Then I had another one to the northeast, which took me through Chicago, New York, up to Maine, down to Baltimore, D.C., and then back across Route 70 to Denver. And then I had the southeastern route, the southeastern 
petal of the uh, clover. And that took me down from Denver, down to Texas, all the way down to Miami, up through the south, and then back across I-70 again. And my overall goal was to hit three, uh, was to play the top 50 cities in the U.S. twice a year, meaning that would be 100 dates on the road. Now, uh, I did not achieve that exactly. Where they say that uh, there's a statement about a, a business plan fails the, the minute it meets its first customer, <laughs> some, some kind of quip like that, but I, I can't pronounce it exactly. But, uh, but there's one out there. And I had to make adjustments with that, you know, due to various things like uh, band membership changes, band member availability. But let's just say that I shot for that and came close to approximating it. So what that means is that pre-internet days are just the beginning of internet days, 1996. I had a lot of people who knew me from shows uh, and having played live. And as everybody's been, as everybody migrated to the internet, uh, they, you know, some people would say, well, let's see, I wonder if Hillbilly Hellcats are here on Spotify. And a lot of people found mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. And uh, and as I look, I see that I'm on 3,000 playlists. Spotify has a deal, uh, I think it's called My Artist or something like that, where you can go and check out all your statistics uh, if you click on the right about if you click on the about and then click on a little menu on the left, it shows you what countries are listening to you, uh, the age groups of the people. Um, let's see what what cities, uh, all the different parameters. That. And, uh, and and so I was able to check it out, and I saw that we have listenership reflected in a country that we. In, so in, in how many today, countries, uh, Chuck, sorry, you cut out for a second. Sure. Okay. Actually, we have played 14 different countries. Okay. And I booked those off, most of those, I booked those off of uh, MySpace and um, Facebook. So uh, some of them go back to the MySpace days. And, uh, and I see that I'm on 3,000 other people's playlists. The big buzz right now that everybody talks about if you if you're at all a student of music marketing online uh the big buzz right now is how to get on other people's playlists and uh there's there are books and articles printed about that i bought a book recently but i haven't uh i haven't started it yet i intend to sit down one day and spend a good afternoon submitting to all the playlists for consideration and but I'm on three thousand of them so far, so that helps. Once again, it's just um, you know getting getting in front of people, doing what you can to expand your listenership. And although that used to be primarily done through touring, now it's done through uh, putting your stuff up on as many websites as possible. I know they say that you should just pick three and stick to three which are going to be your main ones. And I do have three main ones, um, but, but it helps the more you can um, get your stuff out there is submitting. Um, you know, obviously Spotify has emerged as the main form of music distribution now. And, um, and so that, so that's helpful. And also, also the fact that I've had 2 million uh, streams on Spotify 
now helps me to book gigs too. Um, I can put that in my basic pitch when I'm looking to book a live gig. So the club thinks, well, you weren't formed yesterday, so maybe you'll actually show up for the gig that we have booked. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, I'll tell you, there are people doing a lot better than me. I I read a story of an acoustic guitar player. Um, A CD baby likes to feature people. And uh, I read a story of an acoustic guitar player who's got, uh, oh gosh, a, a lot of hits. He's like, say he's paying his mortgage payment with it yeah and he plays acoustic guitar you you think you might have seen that article yeah i read that 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 same article like a week or two ago yeah i saw that so listen let let me jump jump in really quick because i want to ask you something about spotify you said you're on three three thousand different playlists did you do anything proactively to get featured on on those playlists or, or were those all just people that opted to include your your music on their playlist on their own. They were just people who opted to include the music on the playlist on their own. Yeah. Well, that's, that's amazing. So it sounds like what you're, you're saying, Chuck, is that the success you've had on Spotify, you really attribute to the sort of foundation that you laid throughout your career, pre-internet days. Like you had already built up quite a, quite a sizable fan base. So just people know about you and obviously a lot of people have decided to feature your music. Yes, that's a fair statement. I agree. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Now, I'd, li- I'd like to go further. You know, yeah. As I say, I'm gonna, my next stage is I'm going to sit down and, and submit to, uh, to playlists, you know, in the, in the same way that when I subscribe to your challenges, your 90-day and 180-day song licensing challenge, uh, you know, it just was sitting down and uh, following your instructions for submitting to each of the websites that you suggested. And, you know, when I was doing your program, which, as you mentioned, I've done several times. And the reason I did it several times is these places change. Uh, libraries, music libraries go out of business. One music library today decides that uh, they don't need anything. And tomorrow, all of a sudden, they have a desperate call for jazz and it it all depends on on which client walks in the door today or tomorrow it's very very fluctuating uh demand in music libraries and what was hot for me a couple years ago one library who wanted everything i could send him uh today might not be doing that anymore they they might be non-exclusive when i started and uh write write me a message and say well We've decided to go only with exclusive artists now, people who will put their stuff in our library and no other libraries. And uh, if you'd like to sign an agreement to that effect, we'd be happy to. Otherwise, we're letting you know that we will no longer be representing your music. And I understand that's uh, a lot of there's been a movement to exclusive libraries. But by the same token, I'm seeing new libraries open up that are non-exclusive. Yeah. So uh, I don't see it going in one direction or the other. You know, a few years ago when I'd attend music supervisor panels at Taxi or ASCAP, I Create Music, there would be people up on the panel, music supervisors would say, folks, it's just a matter of a few months when uh, you're going to have to be exclusive in one place or the other. This is really the uh, coming up soon. And here we are five years later with a company like Song Trader that's 
Um, you know, you see a lot of um, mention of them on the internet. They're non-exclusive. Music Gateway is coming on strong. They're non-exclusive. Um, you know, so uh, there's it's, it's there's still a mixture of exclusive and non-exclusive out there. Yeah, for sure. How, how big is your catalog, Chuck? You know, my catalog is only forty-five songs. Wow, that's a that's that's surprising because you were saying before we started recording that you've had something like thirty-five hundred TuneSat detections. Was that was that over a, one year or several years? That has been since from two thousand eleven to today. So that'll be seven years now. Seven yeah. years, thirty-five hundred. So that's five hundred TuneSat detections per year. Yeah, and of course, a lot amazing. of those are this are the same show. Every time they play MTV ridiculousness, yeah. uh, TuneSat seems to pick that up pretty well. And oh gosh, I'm, I'm I don't know how many times uh, a song's played on MTV r- ridiculousness. Uh, another thing I'd like to mention, though, which at least interesting to me is TuneSat may tell me that oh, we heard such and such song of yours on ridiculousness again. And I, uh, so what I did was I started subscribing to cable and, uh, and I would use the recorder to record the shows that TuneSat said they heard my music on. I was, I have not been much of a TV watcher for decades, but, uh, I started to pay attention to this. So I would see, I would set my, uh, video recorder for the show and then it would record the show and I'd go back and watch it. And I'd see that not only was one song on there, but maybe a couple others were on there, too, of mine, and TuneSat did not detect them. Hmm. So I I found TuneSat to be pretty hit or miss, but something, you know, uh, something is better than nothing, at least. And, uh, And so also another thing I did was that when I got these recordings uh, showing my songs playing on a particular TV show, I got... uh, ScreenFlow, an app for Macintosh, which is like somewhere around a hundred bucks. And I would play the recorded show off my cable network and record it with ScreenFlow, then edit the show down just to the segment where it featured my song. And that might be a 30 second edit with my song. And that edit there then becomes part of my real quote unquote. So if in the future I'm applying to be in another library and they, and you know, the library, they want to know really what they want to know is, can they make money from including you? That's their final bottom line. And when I have the opportunity to submit links from where my songs have played before, that settles all questions as to whether or not my music is licensable. That's, that's a famous phrase you see around the internet too. They say, is your music licensable? And uh, people like to make pronouncements about this is licensable and that is not not licensable. Mm -hmm. And what I found, if you keep looking enough, or if you listen to enough TV, uh, eventually you hear everything on there, really everything. So, um, so I think just about anything is licensable. Um, and uh, you just have to find the right outlet for it, the library that wants your stuff. Yeah. Or if you type, if you're the person who goes hunting after music supervisors, 
which I don't, you, um, you know, if you hunt, if you contact enough of them, maybe you'll get your song placed. Um, I do things a little differently from the way some people subscribe. I don't chase music supervisors. I don't go on tune find and say, Hmm, so-and-so's got a show. I'm going to send him my songs and, uh, and say, I think this would be good for your show. I don't do that because I've list, I've attended live music panels and the supervisors are pretty unanimous now in saying that they don't listen to, they don't even open the emails of people submitting to them. Uh, one Gary Calamar says he starts, he's a famous music supervisor. He says he starts the day by deleting three or 400 emails that he's received overnight with people sending him links. These people don't even get listened to. And what the music supervisors say is they have their trusted sources. They have a handful of sources, which are effectively libraries or music representatives. And these sources jobs are to vet the composer to make sure their music is registered at ASCAP or BMI or CSAC or whatever country they live in to make sure that the uh, composer has signed uh, an affidavit saying that uh, they, they own all the rights to it. And, uh, so, th so this is what you call music that has already been cleared. The music supervisor will go to a third party who has a collection of music that has already been cleared. So the music supervisor does not have to worry about the legit legitimacy of it. Right. And, uh, and so, so, so that's one thing I do. I, uh, I actually go to music sites and uh, and see what they're looking for, like on your program. Okay, a lot of the libraries you send out, they they will say in the instruction, uh, we're looking for modern dance and hip hop currently, or they'll say uh, we are we we have a call for swamp music currently. They'll say what their needs are. Now, not every but every library says this, but a lot of them do give you a clue as to what they'd like to receive and what they're not interested in. Uh, Audio Sparks is very good about uh, saying, "Okay, here's our unmet needs. We don't have enough um, uh, enough Thailand rap. Uh, we don't have enough um, Russian square dance music." They'll they'll spell it right out like that. Yeah, and I I feel that there are enough libraries saying exactly what they'd like to receive that I don't have to take random shots at a music supervisor and say, here's what I have. I like to respond to calls. And so that's, that's how I do it. And another thing I don't do is I do not follow up at panels. The music supervisors say repeatedly, please follow instructions for, for submission, but don't follow up. We just don't have time to, to tell 300 people uh, what they thought of their stuff and what their prospects are. We barely have time to get the songs done for the show. So, so I don't follow up. I don't, um, I don't call music supervisors from tune find and, uh, and I don't do exclusive. I'm willing, those libraries that go exclusive, I'm willing to let them go and just stick with non-exclusive libraries. So, that's something I do a little different. I also mentioned I don't compose to spec. Um, there are people out there saying, 
okay, we want, uh, we want, uh, oh gosh, I'll, now I'll show how I'm out of it here. I don't mm-hmm. know this month's hot genre. To me, um, dance music basically sounds like evolved disco music. And um, I, I don't sit down and say, well, let's see, I think I'll try and compose pose, uh, dance music because so-and-so library wants dance music. And it's nothing that I would listen to or play, but I'm going to do it because there's commercial demand out there. I never do that. I just, I only attempt to license what I've already created for retail. The, the same songs that are on Spotify, I have, those are the songs that I license. Now, of course, when submitting them, I only instrumentals anymore. Once in a blue moon, they want the song with the vocal, but over 99% of the time, the, they want the instrumental because they're going to have, uh, somebody's going to be saying something on a TV show and they don't want me yapping about something else in the song that would uh, conflict with what is being said on the TV show. So, so I, ba- I bypass the process of, of like submitting the regular song and then have the music supervisor write back to me and say, these are nice. Do you have instrumental versions? Rather than go through that every time, I just lead with the instrumental version and, uh, and wait. If they say, do you also have vocals? Then I'll submit the vocals. And every now and then, yeah, more often in a movie, uh, do they want songs with the vocals? Uh, but almost never. Almost never. So that, that's that's where I'm at in terms of submitting right now. That's interesting. You you've said a lot, and I uh, have a, a few questions. Um, sure. One is I'm curious how many libraries are you in currently? Aaron, I'm a terrible record keeper. Or, okay, j- just give me so, a ballpark estimate. Uh, I'm going to say that I am in 35. Okay. So a few a few dozen. How much time do you spend each week submitting your music and, and researching the needs of libraries? I on the average week I spend none. What I do is I I go in binges. Mm. I think to myself I'll think to myself, uh oh boy, on Aaron's last hundred eighty day challenge, I uh had to go on tour at day ninety eight. And I still haven't done those last 82 libraries. Um, I'm going to get it together here and and submit to those 82 libraries. So I'll sit down for a binge of a few days, and I will finish off uh, libraries that I haven't submitted to yet. Okay. And uh, so, 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 you know, some people um, eventually switch to becoming music licensors, as their full-time exclusive occupation, composers slash music licensors. I haven't totally abandoned the retail performance and, uh, and, and, and artist promotion thing. To, to clarify, uh, certainly a person who composes music for TV and film is an artist in every way, but in the popular notation, uh, in the popular connotation, they talk about uh, your artist songs, meaning that your Hillbilly Hellcat songs. And um, most people gravitate towards one or the other. They either stick with being an artist or move into being a composer slash licensor. 
And I think that you have some followers who are exclusively composer slash licensors. Yeah, for sure. I've got, I've, I've got one foot in each camp, you know, I've still got a foot in the artist camp. I've got gigs coming up and, uh, I still, uh, you know, I, as a matter of fact, recently I've been pitching for, for gigs, uh, using indie on the move.com. And, uh, I've had excellent response with indie on the move.com. And it's all I, I can do to answer all the gigs that are coming in. I took a break for a while uh, playing gigs for various reasons, but I ha- but I decided I'd do it again, mainly to keep my you know muscles from uh, atrophying, atrophying, and uh, and to make sure that uh, I still can go out and perform for a night if I need to, to uh, reinforce the songs in my mind, that sort of thing. So I've been doing that recently. And, uh, how do I get on that topic? Oh yeah. So, so yes, it's not like I spend all day or, uh, every week, like I'd spend a portion of every week submitting to libraries. I don't do that. Um, and I, and, uh, you know, I'll do it when it comes up again. Like my next submission task is going to be submitting to Spotify playlists to yeah. a directory of Spotify playlists. That's my next submission task. And then after that, I'm I'm going to go back and submit to libraries that I haven't submitted to before. I will finish up your last 180 day challenge, which I which I didn't finish up. Mainly, what what I find is that when I get gigs or go on tour, my home routine goes out the window, and uh, and that's okay. You know, that's okay. Um, I. Enjoy, enjoy going on a good musical tour, you know, one that's organized and profitable and not problematic. And I can hear people out there saying no such thing, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, but, you know, but no, actually there are some good ones. I have had tours from hell and I've had some great tours and, uh, and I do enjoy them. And I like the retail music environment by retail. I mean, going out, playing for people and having them, listen to my music or even occasionally buy a CD. When we toured Australia earlier this year in New Zealand, people actually bought CDs. I think they wanted a, a souvenir of the performance because certainly they have Spotify over there. So uh, they can, I didn't understand that. I thought five years ago, I thought, Oh, geez, Spotify's here. Nobody's going to want to buy any CDs anymore, but I was definitely wrong about that. Uh, there are people who are collectors. They like to collect physical things. And just the fact that they've got all my songs on their phone on Spotify uh, doesn't make any difference to them. They want this piece of plastic with pictures on it. And, uh, okay, I finally learned to accept that, that. The whole world doesn't think like me. Yeah, and plus all those people who bought CD players back in the 90s or, or 2000s, they, they still have their CD players most likely. So, yeah, it, it seems like live shows are one of the few outlets where you can still move CDs on a regular basis. Yeah, I'd say so. A lot of times when the people like you as a performer, they want an excuse to come up and talk to you. Uh, they don't want to feel like they're just nagging you. So they feel like if they give you 10 bucks for a CD and ask you to sign it, they have justified their desire to interact with you. And, uh, 
And so, and that's fine, you know, um, that's fine. Merch isn't, well, at least for me, merch is not what it once was back in the nineties, but with a little bit of merch still selling, that's fine. Um, let's see. So, uh, yeah. All right. Well, what, what else is on that list? Did we talk? Well, well here, let me, uh, let me jump in because I have a, a couple, a couple points I sure. want to, to address. I, so it sounds to me like you're sort of enjoying the best of both worlds. You're, you're still touring a, a lot and you're licensing a lot of music. You're licensing a lot of music with a relatively small catalog. And what I'm, what I'm wondering, what I'm thinking about you, Chuck, is we should mention that you're you, stylistically, you're doing like rockabilly music. So I'm wondering if in your case, a lot of your success, I mean, obviously what you do, you do really well, but it's also sort of a unique style you know there's not a ton of people doing it and and i'm just kind of wondering if licensing wise when somebody is looking for rockabilly stuff you're kind of one of the go-to people because you do it so well well i would think? have to say in, in all modesty yes i i think so but here's another consideration um you know when you say rockabilly there's three phases there was the original 50s era there was an 80s revival and then there's the post-2000s um, rockabilly slash psychabilly people. Uh, and and we have a foot in a, and songs sound like they're from each one. We yeah. were pretty quick to um, embrace, to, to start um, doing song licensing. A lot, of, a lot of rockabilly performers were not uh, drawn to technology. And you'll find a lot of them right now never abandon vinyl records. They don't use Spotify. They don't mm. listen to streaming. And, um, and so maybe the fact that we adopted technology further on made us, uh, you know, able to, to be searchable, um, to be found in libraries versus, you know, if you're an electronica artist, you know, electronica people are totally right on up to date with uh, modern mediums. And so they're going to have more competition. But yes, uh, the fact that that I occupy a niche has helped me. I guess it helps and hurts. Uh, you know, it's an it's a relatively unpopular niche. But when you want that niche, a music licensor most likely is going to stumble on the Hillbilly Hellcats when they're if they look in a few different libraries. We're going to come up really quickly, and. Uh, then the only question is, do they like us or not? So, so yes, you could, you could kind of say that we own the niche. I've looked around. I like to, when I'm in a library, I like to search my own, my own name in the library. And I like to search rockabilly in the library and see what comes up to see how many entries of ours come up versus uh, other musicians. And generally in all the libraries we're very well represented. We, we come up more than any other act. So, so although Rockabilly is a small niche, when they find it, uh, when they look through it, they're liable to find us. Now, you know, I say it's a small niche, but a small niche, a small, a small niche, but hmm. um, when, there are a number of TV shows. The Redneck Reality Show is definitely a phenomena. And by that, I mean storage lockers, uh, desert car kings, um, let's see. Hollywood hillbillies. Uh, people are fascinated with, um, what can you say, rural, 
uh, rural hillbilly culture. You know, they, they find that fascinating and the TV shows like to play that up. We're on some show about a tow truck driver too. Who would think there'd be a show about a tow truck driver? Well, there <laughs> is. And, it, and it's, you know, it's silly. It's not stuff that I would generally watch. I like to watch boring documentaries, but, but uh, <laughs> our music is used in, you know, uh, what can you say? Um, hillbilly cornball shows. And there are plenty of them. People like to, what they say, go slumming, you know, to look at how the other side lives. Um, I guess they get bored of sitting in front of co- a computer at their secure office job every day, and they want to see what it would be like to live down in the swamps and hunt, hunt alligators and run a pawn shop and all that kind of uh, quote-unquote low-life activities. Yeah. So uh, well, and there's a lot so of pe- there's a lot of people that that. There's a lot of people in rural America. That that's like half the the country. That's true. That's true. It's a big there's chunk, a, there chunk, are chunk of the demographic. Yeah, I mean, I live in the suburbs of a city, and you probably do too, if not right in the city. And uh, you, you forget that other people, not everybody, thinks and lives like you do. And uh, and so. So, yes, to answer your question, get back to it, I'd say, yes, uh, occupying a, you know, a small niche and being pre- fairly preeminent in it has definitely helped us get to get to be licensed. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen like really, really two sort of categories of composers slash artists that do really well with licensing. And in one are artists that just specialize in one style like you and they do it really, really well. That's all they do, but, but they, they dominate that style. I've seen a lot of artists do well with licensing that do that. And then I've seen other composers that do a little bit of everything. And like you described it, like someone who really like focuses on licensing primarily. So there's, there's sort of two different schools of, of thought, but I like the fact that you're, you're still touring and licensing. You're you're doing both, and I I should also also mention how old are you, Chuck? I'm really old, Aaron. I'm 66 I, now. You're 66, and the only reason I mention that is because I, I think it's kind of inspirational for for all the uh, older artists out there listening to this, because a lot of my clients are you know middle aged and beyond. So it's amazing to me that that you're still doing this not that 66 is necessarily that old but i i feel like a lot of musicians feel like when they reach a certain age a certain point that it's too late but obviously it's 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 not like like how do you feel about getting older in the music business were you ever concerned that it was it was going to hold you back or stop you from having a career well here's the thing at one point in the music business, I fronted a variety band that put on tuxedos and went out and played corporate parties and weddings. And I remember one day at one of those wedding gigs, we were walking somewhere and one of the guests says, says, boy, aren't you a little old to be doing this? <laughs> and I don't, I don't know what I answered, but um, I hope I said, yes, I am. But uh, because Shortly after that, in 1994, I made a conscious decision to, um, to to stop playing variety musics, to stop playing covers, and to sit down and write a bunch of songs, record them, and then 
make my best effort to promote them. And that's been what, 94 to, that's been 24 years ago. And that's a decision that I'm very happy that I made. Um, and the, the reason is, is that, you know, the average people in weddings are going to be maybe somewhere around 30 years old today. And, uh, and, you know, they're going to want in general people who, uh, who are roughly their own age, unless let's say it's a couple who's saying, Oh, let's get a swing band for our wedding. That'll be fun. Swing band, you know, all the, all our older relatives will like that. But for the most part, uh, people, all, all things considered like to be entertained by musicians, roughly their own age who've grown up in the same culture. So, uh, so, you know, I decided that I did not want to grow old in a young person's culture with an old person's and still maintain an old person's culture. And I wasn't going to start listening to whatever is the top 50 on Spotify right now in an effort to remain youthful. I listen to whatever I like and, uh, and not, not to try and, um, to join a current culture on purpose. And, um, and so, so you, what else about age? Well, here's another thing I thought. Okay. So I thought that I didn't want to stay trying to chase a young person's musical world and demographic, but as I look, uh, what BB King played, he died at 90. He was still gigging recently. Dick Dale's out there 70 or 80 or early or early eighties and Dick Dale's still on the road. Um, the Rolling let's Stones. See, there was Rolling Stones. Uh, Chuck Berry, I think, lived to ninety, and uh, he played long after he should have. But um, that's another story. Mm-hmm. Uh, his, he was, he was, you know, he could still sing and was humorous, but his accuracy on guitar was such that he probably should have hired someone else to play the leads. But um, but he tried, and so I would say that. You know, when you're uh, there, there are certain niches that uh, it doesn't matter how old you are. Those niches would be jazz, blues, rockabilly, uh, folk. Um, there's plenty of them, you know, plenty of them that, that age uh, kind of um, almost indicates experience, that your experience and, uh, and gives you credibility. If you were, I don't know, if you were... You might have a hard time being a a 66-year-old DJ wanting to get a gig in a downtown club. There, I think they would look askance at you and think, hmm, is this person going to know what's going on? And is this person going to know how to keep the dance floor full? Um, you know, so I think it's the particular multi- musical culture you're part of. Um, so, so yeah. So yes, I think that uh you know the the good thing about licensing is is that uh your physical appearance and age doesn't matter. All they go by is just uh do you have the right music for the opportunity. Mm-hmm. So licensing is a great thing to me not judged by your age or your um uh, what am I going to say by by your age basically. Licensing is is fine. It just does the music sound like what they're looking for? And, um, and you know, you just, and I think it's a numbers game. You have to knock on a lot of doors. You know, I, I, I've had people come up to me and say, Chuck, I'll pay you 50 bucks if you'll sit down with me for an hour and teach me about music licensing. And I say, sure. 
And so they come over and I tell them all the stuff I'm discussing right now. I write down specific uh, websites for them. I tell everybody to go how to get your music license.com. I say, start right here. There's a free course. Mm -hmm. It'll turn you on to it. Start with Aaron's course. And, uh, and then I, and then I, I'll run into him several months later and I'll say, well, how's it going? Uh, you know, uh, are you doing the music licensing thing? And almost everybody will say, no, they're not doing it. No. Um, you know, and I don't press them as to why didn't they, why did they give me 50 bucks and then not do what I said? But I suspect that a lot of them are hoping that there is a universal registry somewhere much like the Library of Congress, whereby you mail a couple hard copies of your CD to this registry, and then they take care of everything else beyond that. And uh, and when they find out that it's much more like being a door-to-door magazine salesperson, they're not as thrilled about the prospects. The fact that you could sit down and submit to 20 libraries and not hear back from any of them. Yeah. And you have to be the type of person that that does not bother. You know, you got to think, I got a list of 250 libraries from Aaron. Uh, I don't care if the first 20 didn't didn't um, respond. I've still got 230 more to go. Yeah. So that's, that's what it takes. It takes a real uh, door-to-door salesperson's attitude. You have to stay detached from the results of any any particular submission to a library. I treat it like sending a message in a bottle. You know, uh, yeah, just send it out. Put a message in. You just send it out. You're, you know, you're not going to wonder tomorrow. Huh? I wonder if anybody got that bottle yet. I wonder if it's going north or south. Mm. I wonder if I send it out in the right kind of bottle. You know, you put it, you send it out, and don't worry about it. But if you send out enough of them, people are going to start responding. You'll get places that reply to you and say, "We like your stuff." Um, can you send us a dozen more? That that speaks to another consideration, the fact that I don't have a library of hundreds of tunes. The other consideration is that usually when a library likes you, they like to say, we don't want everything you do. We want your dozen best. We want your dozen best. And I have had a library say, call me up and say, we love it. Send us a dozen more. Just send them a dozen more. Well, I've still only used about half the tunes then, mm-hmm. and I've never had a library ask for more than two dozen. So I've so kind of forty-five songs is enough to service everybody. Yeah, now, as long as you're not wrong, going, as long as you're not going to exclusive, and and in your case, you're not. So I'm not, you know. So don't get me wrong, you know. I wish that I had written another hundred songs. I certainly do. But if I'd written another hundred songs, it means something else that I've done I wouldn't have done. Yeah. And uh, and you know there there's more in music to do than any one person can do in their lifetime. There's more to do. So you know you end up accomplishing some things, not accomplishing others. You know I I mentioned too that what I've had on my bucket list was I wanted to learn to play the steel guitar for all the years that I was a band leader playing six string guitar and singing. And uh, in the last five years, I learned to play Hawaiian steel guitar, went to Maui Steel Guitar Festival and have played it four out of the last five years. And then this last year, I uh, took up pedal steel guitar and I've got my first gig next week 
and I'm sweating bullets, mm-hmm. but uh, I like challenging myself. You know, I could have maybe sat down and write another five songs and submitted them to libraries, but that's okay. Um, I'm, I'm, my next goal is to become at least a, a competent pedal steel guitar player. Um, and uh, once I've achieved that, I'll, I'll decide if I want to go further in that or maybe I'll feel like, you know, I wish I had another hundred songs that I could license. I'll sit down and go on a, on a binge uh, doing that. But, you know, you can always write songs, but uh, the performance thing kind of um, it's, it's kind of once you get out of the habit, uh, momentum is very important in terms of maintaining live performance. Venues want to know, where you've played recently, where your, uh, what other shows you have coming up. Momentum counts for a lot, but you can write for a library. Well, I guess there's, there's some momentum. Some people are in recurring situations with libraries whereby the library is in contact with them and they're saying, okay, we need, uh, we need five songs that sound like their eighties music. Um, but I don't want to be in that sort of relationship. I don't want them calling me and telling me what they want me to create. So, so that's okay. But other people like that fine. You know, I've met another uh, student of yours uh, recently, uh, Mike Goodrow, hmm. and it mm-hmm. uh, he was. He tells me he was on a podcast of yours several years ago, and. Uh, and so I like comparing notes with him. He's from Canada, and uh, he's also been very, very successful in licensing, I'd say more so than me. And he tells me about a guy he knows that uh, does all corporate work direct for the client, and he'll, they'll have a, a food company will call him up and say they need a jingle about this, this or that um, brand of butter and they would like these certain elements in it, and he can knock it out in an afternoon for forty thousand dollars. You know, not to call mm-hmm. him if they don't have a good budget. And he creates to spec. He does that on demand. And according to Mike Goodrow, this guy sounds just as convincing doing a butter commercial with uh, with ukuleles in it as he does doing a Chicago blues style from the nineteen fifties. So I envy him. I I'm not that versatile. You're not but, uh, that guy. I'm not that guy. That's right. I'm not that guy. <laughs> and uh, but, you know, but the I guy make, you it are, it makes me envious. Well, you shouldn't be envious. I mean, what you're doing and who you are musically is amazing. I think you're a huge inspiration. I think it's really cool that you're having this, the success you're having in general. I think it's even extra inspirational and i hope you don't mind me saying this but the fact that you're a little older i think that's that's really cool that that you you've carved out this niche in the music business so hats off to you i I think it's awesome well you know what they say you made your bed now you can lie in it (laughs) um you know i I don't have a uh an it degree lying around that i could uh go out and and take computer jobs or high tech jobs tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, in a sense, you know, as you go along in life, you burn your bridges and, uh, yeah, in a way, you know, I guess. Yeah. So, so, you know, um, 
what could I do? I could bag groceries, uh, but I can't think of anything else that I would rather do right now. So I continue in this and, you know, continuing to continue adapting to, you know, basically the great digital disruption of the last 20 years. Yeah. Well, listen, Chuck, um, let's wrap up. We're closing in on an hour. I know that we didn't get to all your bullet points, but let's tell people where they can learn more about you and they can kind of read up on everything that you've been up to. Uh, what's your website, Chuck? What's the best website to direct them to? Uh, best website would be, would be uh, chuckhughesmusic.com. Chuckhughesmusic.com. So go, go check out sure. Ch- Chuck's website. And what I'd like to do as always, is finish with one of your tracks. Do you have anything recent or anything in particular that you'd like to play that we can play at the end? Well, sure. I'll, I'll do something recent that's very atypical. Um, okay. And, and uh, let's see, how, how would you like to reference that track? It's on, it's on Spotify. It's, uh, if it's you, can, on, if you uh, can shoot me over an MP3 after we hang up, I'll, I'll uh, include that at the end of this podcast. An MP3. Okay, uh, here's the situation. My, um, let's see. I've, I'm just on a phone today, as my Wi-Fi does not get set up till tomorrow. I'm in a transitional stage. Um, you let's can, see. Can, you can I you email? Can, you can send it tomorrow. There's, there's no rush. Okay, let me send it tomorrow. I'll send you tomorrow an MP3, and uh, after my Wi-Fi is up, because all my music is in my uh, is in my desktop computer. I'm I'm living off a telephone just like a millennial right now. Uh-huh. So, nice. um, and what's the name of the, yes. tra- the track? The track is called "Everybody Smokes in Europe." Everybody smokes in Europe. That that's so true. Everybody does smoke. Smoke. There's a lot of smokers in Europe still. So, everybody smokes in Europe. ChuckHughesMusic.com. Chuck, thank you so much. You are an inspiration, and I appreciate you taking the time to uh, speak with me today. Thank you, Aaron. Appreciate it. Back here at home in the U.S. of A, I can always tell the line. There ain't no smoking ever indoors, and that wool suits me just fine. But across the pond, it's a different world, like you step back in time. The laws are loose, you get no abuse, they all think smoking is fine. Everybody smokes in Europe, everywhere, all the time. Give me another swig of cough syrup, I'll chase it with a slice of lime. The waitress pops while spring in your stuff, the kids in the school, they're smoking too. So don't blame me if I slip up, cause everybody smokes in Europe. Everybody's chilling all of the time, sitting at the sidewalk cafe. Drinking some wine with a friend of mine Watching the show all day Nap time is here, after a beer Where'd you put the ashtray? I can't say why, I know I could die But you know what they all say Everybody smokes in Europe Everywhere, all the time Give me another swig of cough syrup I chase it with a slice of lime Waitress pops while she's bringing her stuff The 
kitchen school They're spoken to So don't blame me if I slip up Cause everybody smokes in Europe Cough syrup, I chase it with a slice of life. The waitress comes while she's bringing your stuff to kitchen school. They're smoking too. Don't blame me if I slip up, cause everybody smokes in Europe. 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 